Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Hey, it's Kramer. My mission is simple, to make you money. Man Money is away today, but don't worry. I've got something special for you from my friends here at CNBC. Listen in. Welcome to a Fast Money special report, The New American Investor. I'm Melissa Lee. Jim Cramer's off tonight, but we have got a big hour on tap for all you traders looking for some hot opportunities. Here's what's on tap. Bitcoin hits 50K. While sky-high spikes are nothing new, could major corporate backing make the real difference this time? We'll break it down with some of the best in the Bitcoin biz. Then, electric vehicles sitting, quite literally, at the intersection of emotion and momentum. But which gear they're in is up for debate. Our traders will take the wheel on that one. Plus, a first-hand account. One of those who got it right on GameStop, then did the right thing with his winnings, and now wants to make the right decisions about his future in trading. We'll help advise. A special edition of Fast Money starts now. Joining me tonight to tackle all that and much more, two of our finest, Brian Kelly and Dan Nathan. Also, we have Morgan Creek Digital's Anthony Pompliano back with us. Welcome to you guys. Let's get straight to it because Bitcoin hitting a fresh high of 50,000 earlier today before giving back some of the gain. Tesla, just the most recent large company to open up to the digital currency previously and perhaps more quietly, MasterCard, BNY Mellon also did the same. Is wider corporate adoption the key to keeping Bitcoin at these levels? And uh, Brian Kelly. Brian Kelly, I will start with you. You are a resident Bitcoin baller, and I'll get to Anthony, of course, after this. But um, in your view, why, why is Bitcoin, why does it keep marching higher? And at any point in your time, have you ever said to yourself, BK, Bitcoin is overvalued right here? Oh, I, so to answer the second question first, yes. Um, but, you know, every time I thought it's overvalued, it proves to be the wrong uh, move because it keeps marching higher. So I just to be clear, I don't think it's it's overvalued here. What I've consistently said since last spring, Bitcoin is on a trajectory to hit 65,000 by May. That's generally what it did in 2016 after the happening. We are right on track with that. And I think that's a pretty good estimate to say. Once we get to 60,000, we'll have to see. The way I'm looking at it now, you might get an overshoot. It might go higher than that. Uh, maybe at that point you say it's overvalued. But back to the first question in terms of what's driving it here, it's definitely this corporate balance sheet as well as institutions. And they generally are stronger hands than what we had in 2017, which was really hot retail money that as soon as it started to drop, just really dumped out of it. That doesn't mean that institutions are immune from fear and greed, uh, but they generally have a longer time frame. And so that's just a stronger backing to this rally. Yeah. Pomp, I'll go to you on this. Do you see 60,000? I mean, 60,000 could be like a week from now at the rate Bitcoin is going. I mean, in all seriousness, how, what is the case? What is a fundamental case? Can you make a fundamental case in terms of modeling and all that, you know, traditional Wall Street stuff for Bitcoin to go to 65K? Yeah, look, you know, thanks for having me, first of all. I think, you know, I'm not a trader, so I don't really worry about the short-term price movements. I'd look a little bit longer term. uh, And I think that Bitcoin at $50,000 is incredibly undervalued given what we're looking at. And so if you go back uh, to March of last year, there was a liquidity crisis due to the uh, public health concern. You had the elected officials and central banks around the world step in. They have printed an unprecedented amount of money. Uh, After this next 1.9 trillion, 40% of all dollars in circulation will have been created in the last 12 
12 months, just unprecedented uh, level of quantitative easing. And so what that has forced is retail investors, financial institutions, and now corporations to scour the globe looking for where do they protect their wealth? Where do they put dollars uh, to ensure that they are protected? And what they've concluded is Bitcoin is one of, if not the best uh, solutions for that problem. And so I think that what we're going to continue to see is this kind of wall of money. It's not even a wall. It's an avalanche of money coming into the market. But the key piece of the whole thing that people have to understand from a market structure standpoint is Bitcoiners are not selling their Bitcoin. 60% of all Bitcoin has not moved in the last 12 months. That includes hundreds of percent of upside. Mm -hmm. That also includes a single day of 50% drawdown. Bitcoiners are not selling. And so the only thing that can happen is when these large dollars come into the space looking to buy Bitcoin, the US dollar price has to appreciate rapidly to accommodate everyone. I think that's what we're seeing play out right now. I think Pop makes a good distinction in terms of, you know, he's a long-term holder, long-term believer, not a trader. Dan, you're a trader. I mean, I know that you see the sort of the future, the place for Bitcoin, um, you know, in the economy. But at the same time, with the price trajectory here, I mean, what do you make of this? Well, listen, I think that BK just mentioned, you know, December 2017, where we saw Bitcoin go from 10,000 to 20,000 in a matter of weeks. And then we saw it lose 80 some percent of its value over the next year and a half. And, you know, I, I agree. You know, this has been one of the pillars of BK's um, bull case that there's just the institutional adoption of it and then the rails in which, um, you know, allowing institution to get into it. And, and I follow Pomp on Twitter and I read his newsletter and, and I get all that, too. The problem that I have is not just, the, you know, just kind of it's the mania that happens when we see parabolic moves like that. And it could be in a stock. It could be in a, a, in a crypto commodity. I don't really want to call it a currency because what Pomp just laid out makes total sense to me, except for the scarcity value. So right now we're nearing a trillion dollar market cap. And if the, the whales are not selling it and institutions are coming into it and it's the FOMO trade of all the retail, when we do have those 50% corrections, and we've had two in the last two and a half years, it's retail who gets wiped out, the smaller guys, the ones that this kind of financial revolution is supposed to be here for, that's kind of one of my issues, just as a trader and as somebody who comments on this stuff as a pundit, and I just see it again and again and again, whether it's a meme stock or whether it's some crypto thing that doesn't really, it was just a joke, you know, that doesn't really need to exist. Um, that's the issue that I have when we get to these sentiment bubbles. Yeah. Um, Pop, you want to respond to Dan and his concerns? Yeah, I mean, look, the, the data says a, a pretty compelling story that uh, two things are true. One is, uh, I think this data is back in December, over 65,000 digital wallets hold more than a million dollars worth of Bitcoin. And so this is much more kind of democratized than people, I think, give it credit for. And the second thing is, uh, if you go back to March 2020, when there was a 50% drawdown, what we see is the holders are actually accumulating more Bitcoin. So the strong hands are actually accumulating more and more. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, there are for sure people who have very, very big wallets. But when you start talking about tens of thousands of people who have, you know, a million dollars, when you kind of spread it out, you say, how many have 0.1 Bitcoin, right? That's starting to be a pretty meaningful US dollar value. And so I think that what we're starting to see here is that this is a fully democratized uh, system. It's a decentralized system. People around the world are using it. In countries where it's being banned, adoption is going up, right? There's no whales that are sitting there in Pakistan or Nigeria or India. These are people who are literally saying, the current system does not work for me. I need a new system. And what they're doing is they're finding an ability to do that on peer to peer exchanges. And I think that's the story here is that this is much more about the everyday person. Wall Street got front run. Retail front ran Wall Street, and now they're coming in and they're having to buy $50,000 Bitcoin when retail was buying $10,000 Bitcoin and lower. Well, that's sort of what I always saw as sort of the similarities between what, what we have been seeing with Bitcoin and what we've seen with the so-called Reddit rebellion is that, you know, the retail investor, the little guy sort of saw the bigger picture story, stuck with it, and then Wall Street caught on. Um, Brian Kelly, though, we mentioned Tesla, and, and the reason why Tesla put it on the balance sheet is because they're looking forward to the day when customers want to buy cars with Bitcoin. Yeah. That, was that was the impetus. That's, that's why Tesla has it where it has it on the balance sheet. It's not a cash equivalent. It's, it's because they believe customers will want to transact. Won't we need to see that in order for more S&P 500 companies to adopt Bitcoin? Uh, it, it seems that not many are looking at Bitcoin right now at this point in time as a store value. It's, it's the question of whether customers will transact. And for that reason, some companies have already said, no, we're not looking at that because we don't see that demand yet. 
Yeah, no, I, and I think that's a really great point on Tesla. Everybody got very excited that Tesla put it on the balance sheet. But to me, the revolution there or the revelation was that Tesla said, hey, we're going to accept this at some point in time. And then a week later, uh, MasterCard comes out and says, hey, we're going to allow our merchants to accept or be able to uh, transact in Bitcoin. This is the transition in the life cycle. We are in the digital gold commodity era. But those type of announcements move us towards the currency side where you do get more corporate adoption. The volatility will go down. We won't have these massive uh, boom and bust cycles. Perhaps, and I don't know, but perhaps this is the last boom and bust cycle. But it's really important in the growth of Bitcoin as a currency to see Tesla, to see MasterCard and other companies follow suit to say, you know what? At some point in time, we think not only is this going to be a transactional currency, but we might actually use it in our supply chain as we are global because it's a lot more efficient. That's the next phase of this rally, that, or at least the next phase that Bitcoin will go through. All right, let's uh, move on here. we got an update here on two names that entirely disrupted the market just a few weeks ago, GameStop and Melvin Capital. Leslie Picker has that story for us. Leslie. Hey, Mel, that's right. Melvin Capital, like all large institutional investors, revealing its so-called 13F filing today. In it, the firm shared its long call and put positions as of the end of December. Well, as you can imagine, Melvin increased its put exposure to GameStop by about 11% during the quarter. Those puts, though, ultimately expired in mid-January, right before the now notorious short squeeze cheered on by those retail investors on Reddit uh, that you were just talking about moments ago. Uh, a Melvin spokesman told me on January 27th that the firm had closed out its position in GameStop at that time. Still, thanks to a slew of wrong way bets, the firm suffered losses of 53% in January. But it was an earlier 13F filing, actually from mid-2020, the third quarter, that alerted commentators on the subreddit group Wall Street Bets to Melvin's position. Their their bearish bets against GameStop, and that caused a pile-on effect where retail traders looked to not only profit from their long positions in GameStop, but also squeeze Melvin in the process. Melvin's CEO, Gabe Plotkin, is expected to appear before the House Financial Services Committee on Thursday for that full debrief on the GameStop phenomenon. Mel. Got to pop the popcorn for that one. Leslie, thank you. Leslie Picker. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, it is amazing that uh, they reloaded on, on their effective short positions in early January, Dan. It's like they couldn't quit this. But, it, I mean, it was tempted, I'm sure, tempting, I'm sure, seeing GameStop soar to, what, almost 500 bucks. Well, here's the thing, Mel. If you've ever been caught in a short squeeze, it's probably quite possibly the worst feeling you could ever imagine in the financial services industry or in a trading or, or you know money management business and so you have a couple choices you either join in the short squeeze to cover your short or you think about listen this is it it's kind of like the the you know the alamo here and so i think that i suspect is what they did they probably had some um you know optionality with with some of the positioning that they had there but at a certain point you just kind of take one more shot before you're going to say uncle and that's uh, what i suspect they did yeah you know it is amazing though brian Kelly to see GameStop hold on to about 50 bucks a share. I mean, through all this, it, it didn't revert to its, you know, pre-short squeeze level. Right. It's, and what's interesting is, right, because the fundamentals didn't change whatsoever. I don't see lines outside the GameStops at the uh, local strip mall. So the fundamentals haven't changed one bit. It could be just simply, you know, some residual. It could be some short covering at this point in time. Um, but I don't think that the story has changed. At the same time, I don't think you want to be short this again, right? Nobody's gonna and nobody's gonna want to be short these big names again because the risk. What's it gonna add? One or two percent to your portfolio? But if you're wrong, look at what happened to Melvin. You lose fifty-three percent. So the risk reward has changed dramatically on these names. Yep. Still to come, electric vehicles, a favorite of the new American investor and seasoned pros alike, but the space is being pulled in a lot of different directions. We'll take a look at the potential opportunities around the bend. Plus, we're taking your questions. We want to learn more about what you want to learn about, so send us your tweets. We'll try and answer them. Stay tuned. Fact. Running a business is not getting easier on your wallet. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. Also a fact. 
Smart businesses are reducing costs and headaches by graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. Accessed from anywhere. You can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. See how you'll profit with NetSuite, and then you can think of all the ways you could be spending the money you save. Company retreat in Malibu, anyone? By popular demand, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com to start saving. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash madmoney. Just go to Indeed.com slash madmoney right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash madmoney. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome back to this Fast Money special, The New American Investor. Check out Palantir, another favorite name of new investors, but dropping sharply after the company posted some disappointing earnings this morning. Let's get to Josh Lipton, who's got the details. Josh. Melissa, so this was actually a first for me. I've never really seen a CEO before sort of talk about his earnings while walking through snow-covered woods and referencing the philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein. But that's just what Palantir CEO Alex Karp did. Take a listen. We believe that the, the transfer, tra- transformation which is happening in the world now will accelerate. Uh, and that the way in which we're providing software, both uh, Foundry, Gotham, and our ability to scale this uh, through Apollo, will be the way that everyone at some point will actually try to build software and the way in which institutions will procure software. So points there, obviously, for scene setting, but that optimistic take did not seem to win over investors, at least today. That stock just had its worst day since going public. Analysts say Q4 results showed solid revenue upside. On the other hand, they were arguing lack of new customer growth and a narrowing of growth drivers, meaning government sales jumped 85%, while commercial revenue increased just 4%. But how's this for a long-term outlook? Starting in 2021, company says it expects greater than 30% annual revenue growth each year for the next five years. I caught up with Brent Till over at Jeffries. Now, bottom line, he says the stock was primed for a breather, he argues, after such a strong run. There's also concern about a big impending lockup release, but Brent still believes in Palantir's technology. He sees this company gaining ground in the enterprise. He rates Palantir a buy, he tells me, with a $40 price target. Melissa, back to you. I also thought it was quite unusual for him to be in the snow, um, but uh, you know, hats off to him for, for handling the cold weather with the gloves on. Josh, thank you. Josh Lipton. Um, Dan, what'd you make of the quarter? I mean, it, it, was it just the case of the stock had gone so far that uh, the bar was really high? Bar was high. This stock went public through a direct listing at $10. It spent a few weeks there after the result. And one of the concerns were exactly some of the things that Josh had laid out about customer concentration, growth that wasn't as hyper as some of the names that we were starting to see um, come public last year in the cloud. You know, I think that that revenue guidance that they gave over the last few years should be pretty good. I think consensus was looking for maybe mid-20s growth for the next couple of years. 
this stock trades at 35 times sales, not earnings, times sales, okay? So the problem here is that, you know, this not profitable, they've been around for, um, you know, a couple decades here, and it's just really expensive, and, and it's a one and a half billion dollar um, revenue company. So, you know, I, it just doesn't make a whole heck of a lot of sense. You'd rather go for hyper growth and pay this sort of multiple. So the stock needs to cool off, the high was 45, the low was obviously 10, it's trading around 25, you probably have an opportunity to buy it in the teens sometime in the not too distant future. Beek, what do you, Beeks, what do you make of PLTR? Yeah, so I'm right. I'm right on board with Dan there. The problem you have with this stock, I mean, the guidance was okay. It looks like a bit of a deceleration from what we've had, you know, 30% growth. They were looking at, you know, they had 47% growth, but it's still pretty good growth. But the problem you have here is that the government sector is going well for them. The corporate sector isn't. And that is going to take some time. We just had Brent Thill on from Jeffries uh, on Fast Money at the five to six hour. And he was talking about taking multiple years for that corporate sector to really start firing. And in the meantime, while you're waiting for that to fire, you've got this massive lockup of investors who have owned the stock for 10 years uh, that are looking to sell and looking to monetize at very high prices. So I, the way I would trade it, I would look to buy it maybe around $15, but it's a function of price and time. It's not just if it hits 15, buy it. It's if it hits 15 and it's a couple months later, then I might start getting interested in it. All right, we've got some earnings news out for you. Check out shares of QuantumScape. It's on the move in the after-hour session, off the after-hour session high. So Evie Maker out with the fourth quarter results. Let's get to Phil LeBeau with the very latest. Phil. And Melissa, one reason it's moving higher is because the conference call, which just wrapped up, I think the tenor and the tone from the CEO, Jack Deep, saying was, hey, we've got some progress that we're making here. We're a ways from seeing production, but we see some progress being made in a couple of key areas. And the two points that they made, forget about the fact that in their Q4 results, it was a loss of 241 a share. These guys are pre-revenue. Nobody's really trading this stock off of the results from the fourth quarter. The two developments that the company mentioned, first of all, multi-layer solid-state battery cells. They have developed some. Now it's still in the development phase, but what they've seen, they, they are encouraged by. This is the beginning of saying, okay, let's see where we can take it from here. Also building pre-pilot line for battery cell production in San Jose. For QuantumScape, when you look at these guys since their uh, SPAC IPO, this is a case where, remember the news on December 8th when they said, look, our, our solid state battery progress, it is substantial. That's what sent the stock substantially higher there in early December. It's come back here. Uh, but Jagdeep Singh says, look, we expect to have $900 million by year end. And if they have that $900 million in liquidity by then, that should get them through to the beginning of production. Still remains to be seen where the final production will take place. Does it take place in Germany because of their partnership with Volkswagen? Does it take place somewhere else? These are some of the questions we'll have for CEO Jagdeep Singh tomorrow morning. Squawk on the street. You don't want to miss this interview. It is a CNBC exclusive. And we'll be talking with Jagdeep not only about what they talked about today in terms of the solid state batteries and the cell production and the progress they're making there, but more importantly, the path to profitability, Melissa. That's still, when you look at the analyst notes and when you talk to analysts, they all say the same thing. We're targeting 2027, 2028. And then we're backing it out on a discounted cash flow basis. So you really do have to have your faith that this is all going to come together. That's a long ways off, that's for sure. Phil, when, you, when we talk about $900 million getting it to the production phase of things, does that also cover what they need to spend to get that production up and running? A uh, little unclear there. That, but they believe that this is what they get to that point. Now, I would say that there may be some kind of a capital raise if they say, okay, maybe we need to have a little more money in terms of making that production go forth. Also on the call today, there were two other things, Melissa, that stand out. One, have they worked with, have they had any discussions with other automakers aside from Volkswagen? Mm -hmm. And they said, look, the relationship with the Volkswagen is not exclusive. We can talk with other automakers. We have talked with other automakers. Nothing to report there. Also, uh, Jagdeep Singh was asked about the eVTOL market, the eVTOL market, which is electric vertical takeoff and landing aircraft, which is rapidly developing. He says they have been in touch with those eVTOL manufacturers, and he thinks it's an attractive market. <laughs> That's like a, a hope built on top of a hope, though. <laughs> I don't know. I'm a little leery of that, but uh, I understand that it's part of the future. Phil, thank you. You bet. Phil LeBeau. Um, Dan Nathan, I'll, I'll go to you on that. Um, 
you know, what is going for this company certainly is a partnership with Volkswagen that makes it a little bit more stable than if, if this battery company had no auto partner, right, in terms of finances, yeah. in terms of using the battery. Do you like this? Well, here's the thing, right? So this company went public through a SPAC, and obviously Volkswagen was already in. So we're an $18 billion valuation pre-revenue. You know, we're talking about getting to er some sort of earnings break even. We don't even really have a business model yet, right? And so, you know, if you're willing to do that and you're Volkswagen, you're making a long-term bet, that makes sense. And if you look at the second largest holder, which is Cotter, then you have 32% of this holding that is locked up. Now, Phil just said there's going to be an equity rate that's going to be dilutive. So, you know, you're looking at this thing and it's a big pile of cash, right, uh, that trades in, in, in equity value. There's no cash on the balance sheet, that sort of thing. It, it's just like this is the market that we're in. Can I tell you what they should do? And I'm sure bankers are calling him saying, do a secondary, buy some Bitcoin. You want this thing to start going. And I'm not joking in a way because we saw that with Tesla last week. Investors liked it. <laughs> All right, Pop, I'll get your quick comment on that. That does seem like a recipe for, for success in this market. Buy some Bitcoin, put it on the balance sheet. I mean, before we talk about Bitcoin, this is just insanity, right? I mean, you got a company that's worth $18 billion and they're basically pre-product, pre-revenue. Uh, it just fe feels like all of a sudden uh, bankers and retail investors are playing venture capital in the public markets uh, via some of the lower quality SPACs. And so I think people just have to take a step back for a second and say, wait, what is going on here? Right? I mean, literally a pre-product, pre-revenue company that's valued at $18 billion. And they're talking about maybe we'll get uh, kind of break-even revenue uh, almost a decade away. It just sounds like insanity. And frankly, uh, the best thing and probably the only thing they can do to save themselves is take all that cash, go buy Bitcoin and sit on their hands for a decade. And they'll probably be better off doing that than uh, whatever they're trying to do here. Even Dan's laughing at that pump. All right. More of this Fast Money special, The New American Investor to Come. The options market was the first to open many people's eyes to a new way of looking at stocks. So we're going back there for the next potential opportunity. And we've got a beauty that's a hint. And later on, we're speaking to one new trader who got a big opportunity in GameStop and now wants to take his game to the next level. We'll try to help him out with his next trade idea. Stay tuned. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to this Fast Money special, The New American Investor. Shaping, shaking up the uh, stock market in recent weeks and the increasing availability of trading tools to retail investors means they are shaking up the options market as well. Now, last week, names like GameStop, AG, AG Silver, Tilray, Sundial Growers, PayPal, they accounted for nearly 10% of all options contracts traded in the U.S. Now these traders have set their sights on a brand new name. So let's bring in Mike Coe. For more on this action, Mike, where are you seeing the fingerprints now? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, there is a common theme, I think, when we take a look at this. You know, one of the things that we've certainly witnessed was there were a lot of fairly distressed companies. I think GameStop, a lot of people would have described that as a distressed uh, company going into the tail end of last year. And they were betting essentially on a turnaround. You know, some of the places that we continue to see options activity starting to pick up are names that uh, maybe wouldn't be sort of the new and exciting companies, but companies that maybe people are continuing to make that same kind of a bet. Kohl's Stores, Advanced Auto Parts, and Ulta, the uh, beauty retailer, was one of the names that saw more than two times the average daily options volume today. And this is a company that probably year on year is going to see a, a top line revenue decline. 
So obviously this is, and yet the stock hit a 52-week high today. So I think what's going on is that people are essentially looking for places where they can make levered upside bets. That's essentially what we're looking at. Very short dated. Again, uh, here we were looking at options that are going to be expiring at the end of this week. So this is only a few days old. And that also continues with the same kind of pattern that we saw in some of these others. Uh, small trade sizes, short dated bets to the, you know, to the upside in names that, you know, it's not a really a big fundamental story necessarily that people are, are looking at. Yeah. Um, Dan, I don't know if you noticed this sort of action or if you have been looking around for this sort of action just to see what the next sort of quote unquote hot trade could be. Yeah, I'm not looking, but I think the Wall Street bets crowd certainly is, right? And they're looking for catalysts and they're looking for squeezy names. And, you know, there's another one. I don't know if you guys put the chart up there, but Mike just said the stock's breaking out to new 52-week highs. So breakouts are very powerful technical patterns, right? So if you're seeing some of this small numbered um, contracts, you know it's retail and they're playing for these things. And Mike also mentioned that you're seeing them really short dated. You know, we use the term cheap or expensive in the options market. There's two worries, volatility terms and then dollar cheap. And sometimes with a high price stock like this, you're looking at those short dated ones to get cheap dollar wise and playing for a breakout like that. So I, I see what Mike sees. Um, you know, is it a repeatable sort of behavior? I'm not so certain. I think if you're the Wall Street bets crowd, you're looking for high short interest, really poor sentiment and looking to make those sorts of bets where you can get a big squeeze going. I mean, if you're to do sort of an autopsy on, on the GameStop trade, and I, I'm reluctant to use the term autopsy because I don't think the story is completely over yet at this point. It's still sort of unfolding in front of us. Um, but part of that was the, the 140 40 percent short interest in the stock. The stock was more shorted than owned. And so, Brian Kelly, you know, it's it's rare to find sort of that kind of circumstance out there. GameStop was sort of an anomaly when it comes to trading. Yeah, well, I mean, it's very curious. How can how can you short more shares than there are actually in existence? That doesn't make sense to a lot of people. That's why it's anonymous. anonymous. That means somebody had a naked short, meaning they borrowed it, but they, they, they shorted it, but they didn't borrow it or some kind of mechanic like that. It may have had to do with options, but the bottom line, you're right. There aren't a lot of these out there. The one thing I would say, since we're talking about the new American investor, this game has been played before. This is what it looked like in 1999. When you announced that you had a web page, your stock went up 10%. I, you were pre-revenue, you did flying cars, you did all these things, and it still went higher. I don't know where it ends, but these are the signs that a market is overheating in a bubble and there's too much Wait money. Wait oh. a minute. You said to set a web page, a dot com. How about adding Bitcoin to your balance sheet? Don't 100%. you throw that in there? You throw that in there, right? I would absolutely. That doesn't necessarily mean that Bitcoin is in a bubble. It doesn't mean that meant that web pages were in a bubble, but it did mean that the stock prices were in a bubble when things started doing that. When you see stocks go up just because they do, just because they buy Bitcoin or just because they have a web page, that's not a normal fundamental, hey, I'm improving the business. Mm -hmm. So, you know, whether it's Bitcoin, gold, I, I don't know, flying cars, if stock prices go up on non-fundamental reasons, that's a warning signal. That's my point. Dan, I could tell you wanted to get in. Yeah, and I and I have a question for Pomp because I follow mm -hmm. both Pomp and BK and I'm watching some massive trends that they talk about daily in DeFi, decentralized finance and the opportunities there. And I see these tokens, they're just similar, Mel, like we're talking about some of these dot coms in 98, 99, 2000 that are pre-revenue, that sort of thing. And some of these DeFi tokens based on, you know, a, a, a Ethereum blockchain, they have six, seven, eight billion dollar market caps. And so my question is, explain that to me why that's different. Do you know what I'm saying? Because there's nothing accruing to them dividends or, or earnings or that sort of thing. So, Pop, give it to me, man. Yeah, well, I think there's a couple of different pieces, right? I mean, we just talked about a stock that's worth $18 uh, billion, pre-product, pre-revenue, and basically yeah. is uh, making announcements about announcements, right? That was like a uh, um, kind of an altcoin uh, marketing campaign that would work in 2017. And so I think that we've got to kind of separate. This happens in the public markets. It happens in crypto. It happens everywhere. Um, and, and some would argue, actually, it's even worse in the public markets than it is in crypto. When it comes to crypto, I think you've really got to separate it into Bitcoin. Bitcoin is a digital currency. It is the winner there. 
uh, it is by far the king and it will remain the king for a long time. Uh, there's a whole bunch of uh, people who are competing for our innovation um, and, and kind of progress around these decentralized financial applications. And so uh, there's a bunch of controversy. There's a bunch of competition as to where that will be built. Uh, I'd like to just say that, look, the world is going to change. We are going to uh, establish two key frameworks that everyone on Wall Street needs to wake up and listen to. The first is that digital assets will be more valuable than analog or electronic QCIP assets, right? In my mind, that is a foregone conclusion. Digital assets will be more valuable. Second is that decentralized applications are going to be worth more than their centralized counterparties. And so if people start to understand that these decentralized open protocols are going to be the foundation for the future world, then what you can start to do is you can still readily start to wrap your head around what are good businesses in the centralized legacy world and what are going to be those decentralized versions. And so I think that's what you're starting to see. Remember, retail understands this better than Wall Street, right? right? Retail found Bitcoin before Wall Street ever found it. Same thing's happening now is retail is understanding how this technology enabled uh, kind of new system is being built much, much better than anyone on Wall Street. And so Wall Street should go and listen to what retail is saying, because retail has been right before. And I think they're right here again. And I think that's only going to continue to be uh, kind of a tailwind for the retail investors moving forward. All right. Well, just around the bend on this Fast Money special, the new American investor. Bitcoin's run to the 50K mark has pulled along plenty of names in the space. We'll talk to the new CEO of Riot Blockchain. That is next. And do not forget, tonight we're here to learn as much from you, hopefully, as you do from us. So send us your tweets and we will answer them. Stay tuned. Welcome back to this Fast Money Special Report. The new American investor, Bitcoin, surges above 50000 for the first time today as cryptocurrency continues to gain mainstream acceptance. Several stocks have been riding the Bitcoin bull, including Riot Blockchain, closing up 21% today. Riot claims to be one of the largest Bitcoin miners in North America. The CEO, Jason Less, joins us now. Jason, great to have you with us. Thank you for having me, Melissa. Appreciate the opportunity. Um, talk to us about your, your companies, your stocks, rise. Um, and, and, you know, we, we pulled some stats in the past six months. Riot blockchain is up 1500 percent, while Bitcoin is up 300 percent. Can you walk us through why Riot blockchain would have such leverage to the Bitcoin rise? Yeah. So uh, over the past 12 months, Riot has put a real focus into growing its hash rate. And to the viewers who don't know what that is, that is the computational power that a, a miner has. And it is what they need to help get a portion of the fixed Bitcoin block reward. So while the Bitcoin market was not that strong for all of 2020, we really put our head down and put a real effort into securing minor purchase orders that were during 2020 that would not be delivered until 2021. So we invested that capital because we perceived a market opportunity in the future similar to what we're seeing now. So now when the market has taken off and is quite hot, it's, it's difficult to get mining equipment right now. And we're fortunate to have uh, made that investment in the past. And now we are deploying hash rate. We are growing mining power at a time when there's real opportunity for Bitcoin mining. I've only seen your earnings um, that you posted uh, November in 2020. So it was the first three months of last year, Jason. But can you walk us through how we should think about what your power is now? You, you had said in that report that you produced 730 um, Bitcoin in the first nine months of the year. How should we think about it in terms of, you know, the having happened? So uh, the reward rate went down to 6.25 Bitcoins per block. Um, there are stats out there saying that, you know, one Bitcoin is mined every 10 minutes. Walk us through what, what that power is that you invested in and where that power is right now as we are seeing Bitcoin uh, approach in, in crossover 50K. Sure. So Riot's hash rate did grow pretty significantly during 2020, but the, the bulk of those deliveries uh, not only did not come until the end of the year, but really a lot of what we invested was for 2021 uh, right now. So starting here in 2021, we shared last week, uh, we received our latest shipment of miners and our hash rate has reached a little over, it's reaching one exahash per second. Uh, to put that in context, the, the global uh, Bitcoin mining hash rate right now is approximately uh, 150 exahash. It varies quite a bit. So um, we, we expect that alongside this increased interest in Bitcoin, the increased uh, margins for miners, there's going to be a lot more competition heating up in the space. There's going to be a lot more hash rate getting deployed. 
but uh, we have we are scheduled to grow our hash rate alongside that. And what we're really competing for as a miner, as I touched on a little bit before, your hash rate as a ratio to kind of the global Bitcoin mining hash rate is somewhat around what your expectation can be for what your mining rewards are going to be. As you stated, every 10 minutes, approximately, a new Bitcoin block is found. And for finding that block, there's a 6.25 Bitcoin reward plus any transaction fees uh, that were included in that block. Now, uh, Riot participates in a mining pool like, like most all miners do. So a collaborative effort to find those blocks. So as a miner, simply put, as a miner is increasing their hash rate relative to the global hash rate, you are increasing your odds of getting a piece of that pie. We are approaching uh, deploying one exahash right now. And with the miners we have on order, we're scheduled to hit 3.8 exahash uh, by the end of 2021. Hey, Jason, that's BK. So I, I'm curious, I was on a call with an investor today and they asked me about mining. And my answer was, you know, I haven't invested in mining because there's this picks and shovels fallacy where everybody takes the gold miner uh, kind of paradigm and says, well, you know, during the gold rushes, you should have bought picks and shovels because that made more money than actually buying gold. But the fallacy there is gold was pegged at a single price to the U.S. dollar for the entire gold rush. That's very different here in the Bitcoin market. Bitcoin's not pegged. Its upside is uncapped. And so why is a miner a better investment in this space than just buying Bitcoin? Because it seems to me you've got massive sunk costs. You're always having to update your equipment. You better be right on those cycles of the mining cycles, not just on the price of Bitcoin. So why should somebody buy Riot blockchain and invest in mining versus just buying a Bitcoin? Seems like the same bet to me with less cost. Well, so Bitcoin mining, when you break it down, is essentially you are the number one variable cost for Bitcoin miners energy. Uh, of course, you have your capital expense up front and then going forward, you have that uh, significant energy costs going forward. So Bitcoin miners are taking that energy and they're converting that into proof of work. And when successful, they get a Bitcoin as a reward. So um, if you are strategic at mining, if you are able to have very competitive costs better than your competitors, what you are essentially going to be doing is buying Bitcoin at a discount to market uh, going forward. And now the, the key point there is obviously you need to have pretty uh, significantly low costs. You have to remain competitive to that space. The price will fluctuate. You're absolutely right. That is a big risk to miners. And the competition around mining fluctuates as well. So if you are uh, strategic, if you are building uh, infrastructure, making plans that are going to last a long time, as a miner, you have an opportunity to be accumulating Bitcoin over a long period of time. And uh, as the price goes up and down, it, it, when your costs are low enough, you have the uh, you are afforded the ability to hold on to a lot of the Bitcoin that you mine, right. and you can hold on to that for brighter pastures in the future. Um, Jason, I, I have to ask you this question because CNBC spent a lot of time investigating your company a couple of years back. Um, that was when your former CEO, your former largest shareholder, were both charged by the SEC with allegations of, of basically pump and dump unrelated uh, to Riot blockchain. But they were integral parts of your company um, back in 2018 when you converted from Bioptics, a biotech company, into Riot blockchain. At this point, is that completely behind you? Do they have any role in the company? Are you uh, in, in contact with them whatsoever? Because you are, I believe, a board member at that time. Uh, I was a board member. Uh, I joined the board of Riot Blockchain uh, in late 2017, uh, bringing my expertise in Bitcoin and the industry to the space. Uh, since that time period, the company has gone through a very significant transformation. We have uh, added an almost entirely new board. We've re revamped the management team. Uh, we are not uh, connected to those uh, prior individuals or, or entities anymore. We have put our head down and focus, strategic focus into uh -huh. specifically Bitcoin mining and growing uh, our hash rate, growing our operational capacity, and beyond that, supporting the growth of Bitcoin mining in North America. Okay. Jason, pleasure speaking with you. Thank you for your time. Thank Jason, you, Melissa. Jason Les, the CEO of Riot Blockchain. Real quick, Pomp, real quick, Bitcoin or a miner? Would you rather? 
I think it's two different investments. You really got to ask yourself, what are you trying to accomplish? Uh, it's very obvious that Bitcoin related stocks have done well. You know, they're obviously up, I think, 100 percent in the last week or so. You got Marathon. It's up about 70 percent. MicroStrategy up 28 percent or so uh, in the last week. Bitcoin is not. Uh, but I think over a long period of time, uh, I personally prefer Bitcoin and just continue to hold Bitcoin. All right. Coming up on this Fast Money special, the new American investor, a flesh and blood new American investor. We had a, he had a great run with GameStop and now wants to take his trading to the next level. We'll try and help. That's coming up in two. Welcome back to Fast Money Special Report. The new American investor, our next guest, is a college student who won big in the GameStop rally, racking up $36,000 in profits as the stock exploded higher last month. Not bad for a 20-year-old, right? Um, well, it gets even better. He used a portion of those profits to buy gaming consoles for patients at a children's hospital in his home state of Minnesota. Now, he is focused on moving his portfolio to the next level. Hunter Kahn, a mechanical engineering student at Cornell University, joins us now. Hunter, great to have you with us. Hello, thanks for having me. First of all, good work in terms of using your profits for good. Um, you Thank started trading a long time ago. It all started with uh, a car and a girl, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. Back in uh, 2019, as soon as I turned 18. Yeah, you, you wanted to buy a Corvette, I think it was, to impress a girl, and, mm -hmm. and that didn't quite happen. I'm not sure if the car didn't happen or the girl didn't happen or both didn't happen. Um, but here you are right now. What are you, what are you doing in your portfolio right now? Uh, so currently I am uh, invested in Virgin Galactic, which is uh, probably my favorite stock right now, just because I like the idea of it. You know, why would you sit on a plane that takes 14 hours to get to China when uh, you could do it in four hours and also see Earth from space? Uh, I'm also super excited about uh, nuclear energy and other green green energy picks, mainly nuclear energy. I think that uh, uh, they have some huge potential coming up here. Just curious, Hunter, um, did you get these ideas off of Wall Street bets? Uh, you know, I got a couple of these ideas off of Wall Street bets, but, uh, you know, I kind of got like I kind of get the ideas, but then I do my own little bit of research to kind of validate them, make sure it's not just some fluff. Yeah, which is the wise thing to do always. Right. You can get your ideas anywhere, yes. um, but you got to do your own due diligence or DD, as they call it, on the Wall Street <laughs> bets thread. Um, Dan, exactly. I want to bring you in. What do you what do you think of uh, of Hunter's positions? See, I love it. I mean, I think that you know, obviously you had a good bit of success in a single situation, but you're talking about investing now. And one of the themes that, you know, Pomp was talking about when you're looking at uh, a new asset class or a new industry in a way is have a long term view. So you're in the position now and now you have to think about how you're going to manage that. Will you buy more as they come in? Will you add as it goes higher? What are the inputs that are going to make you feel more confident about that position over time? So I think it's really important. Just my two cents is like, of course, Virgin Galactic sounds like a great idea. Um, it's been mm -hmm. a great stock. Will it be a great company? Who knows? But keep doing your work is what I would say. Yeah. All right. I mean, the it, potential is definitely there. Of course, it does rely on the on how they pull it off. Yep, definitely. Well, um, keep keep checking in with us, Hunter. We're curious as to how you do. Good luck. Thank you. Hunter Khan. Uh, Brian Kelly, I'm going to go to you on this. You love put it in your drawer stocks and just, you know, put it away. <laughs> Yeah, Hunter must have been sneaking into my top drawer because uh, you know Virgin Galactic is in the the top door stock. You put you put your shares in there and you close your eyes. I think he's 100% right on that. And I think nuclear is really really interesting. It's not all that easy to invest in right now, but I think if you're looking over the next three to five years, if you're transitioning more towards kind of the investor side as opposed to the trader side, you absolutely want to look at nuclear. All right, um, we want to round out this hour with. A tweet from one of you out there. Here it is. Hey, Fast Money. I'm John from Sherman Oaks, California. Boy, is my money moving fast these days. I've been an investor in the stock market for quite some time, but ever since the March pandemic hit, you know, the markets have been doing such strange things. I've invested into these trending stocks. I've been buying into disruptive stocks. ARK ETFs, all sorts of things that have done extremely well. Much to my amazement, none of them are fundamentally sound. Their PE ratios are off the charts. And, you know, I'm wondering where we go from here. The real question today is, how do you see the broader markets balancing out in the long run for the retail investor? I think that's the ultimate the ultimate <laughs> conundrum here. And, and Pomp, you know, you, you have the sort of vision, you like Bitcoin and all that stuff. But you call it out QuantumScape for being pre-revenue, et cetera. <laughs> what, what is the difference here and how do you sort of, you know, process this? 
Yeah, look, I, th- I think young people have a massive advantage uh, over older generations or, or those who uh, do this professionally. And it's because they understand not how to do financial engineering. They understand consumer trends and they have a very deep conviction where the world is going, right? They grew up with a cell phone in their hand. They're digitally native. And so if you go and you talk to young people under the age of 25, they'll tell you things like esports, psychedelics, collectibles, weed, electric vehicles, Bitcoin, etc. All that sounds absolutely insane and on the fringe to most people on Wall Street, I think. But what you find is that is actually the future. That is where value is going to get created. And so I think in kind of BK's version of the, the, you know, buy the shares, put them in the drawer, just if you have a long time horizon and you essentially use your stock portfolio as a savings account, take a portion of your income every single month and just put it into the stock market. You can either go into ETFs or you can go into some of these uh, kind of more secular bets and then just let it play out over a five or 10 year horizon, I think that young people can really press that advantage they have of understanding where the world's going. uh, And that'll end up being pretty good for their portfolio. All right, let's get to our next question. Hi, my name is Alex, and I've been interested in investing into precious metals such as gold and silver. But with all the talk on Reddit and watching Wall Street bets, I was just wondering what's a better long-term secure investment, whether if it's to invest in the actual metal itself, such as silver bars, or get like a silver stock. Hmm. Brian Kelly, sounds like one for you. Yeah, that's a that's a great question. So uh, for me, if you're simply just investing and you want to be want to have it as part of your portfolio, the silver ETF is probably the way to go. SLV is the symbol there. Nothing wrong with buying silver bars, but you know you've got to store them and you got to hold them and keep them secure. Um, so you know unless you're buying silver because you think that the financial system is going to collapse and you're going to need that physical silver and or gold, uh, then knock yourself out. Buy buy that. I actually own some myself as kind of a full on hedge. But I think the easiest way is really you're making a bet on the price of silver going higher. Just buy the ETF SLV. We're going through a period here where as interest rates go up, it's going to weigh a little bit on precious metals. But eventually the inflation narrative should pick up and that'll be good for silver. All right. Brian Kelly, Dan Nathan, thank you. And thank you also, Anthony Pompliano of Morgan Creek Digital. We will be back tomorrow with another Fast Money special report on the New American Investors. We'll see you then. Meantime, the news with Shepard Smith starts right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.